All right, everybody. Welcome on this Ascension Day. The Psalm of the Week is 116. We'll pray the Psalm responsively by half verse. The verse for the week, John 14, promise of Jesus there in the congregation at prayer. We'll use that as an antiphon before and after the psalm. And the hymn is 532. It's in the Redeemer section, but it is a great ascension hymn by Thomas Kelly, an Englishman. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I love the Lord because he has heard. My because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are gracious and merciful. You preserve the simple and save those who are brought low. We love you, O Lord, because you hear our prayers and answer them. Strengthen our faith in your precious promises that we never fail to call upon you in every time of need. For you deliver our souls from death and keep our feet from stumbling. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. From the table of duties, what does God's word say to employers and supervisors? Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Gracious Lord, you have given us great responsibilities and authority as employers and supervisors of others. Teach us by your grace and mercy to treat our workers and those who are under us with respect, understanding, and compassion. Give us a humble spirit toward them and help us to see our workers as gifts of God who depend upon us for their livelihood and who enable us to be of greater service to others for whom we perform our life's work. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. What does God's word say to youth? Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. O Lord, as you in humility and faith submitted yourself to Mary and Joseph and to every authority instituted among men for our salvation, teach us to submit to our elders and to believe that you will accomplish your good purposes in our lives and in the lives of others through such honor and respect. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Almighty God, as your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, ascended into the heavens, so may we also in heart and mind continually ascend and dwell there with him. Into your hands, O Lord, we commend Peggy Lundberg's mother Karen, diagnosed with shingles, Evan Lewis, recovering from a leg amputation, David Berger, Kathy's father, at home after a hospitalization, undergoing further treatment. Pastor Canopy, who is recovering from pneumonia. Harold Campen at home following a hospitalization and rehabilitation stay. Walt Disson in extended care at a rehab center following a fall and hospitalization. Mark Gretzinger in great pain and continue to undergo, undergo treatment and testing. And Kathleen, Tanya, Dennis, Gabby, Mike, Peyton, Kathy, Heather, and Jeff in various stages of treatment for cancer. Bring healing according to your will and uphold them under the cross of affliction with your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord who has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 532. This morning we'll sing stanzas 1, 5, and 6. 1, 5, and 6. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. They suffer with their Lord below. They reign with him above. Their prophet and their joy to know the mystery of his love. The cross he bore is life and health, though shame and death to him. His people's hope, his people's wealth, the everlasting theme. Matthew chapter 27. The Apostle Peter said in his first epistle, the first chapter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So, the theme of redemption, which is in the Old Testament, you can't have daily sacrifices in the shedding of blood to atone for sin, or the shedding of the Passover lamb's blood to redeem from slavery in Egypt which was the foundational event, and not see redemption as a key theme in all of Scripture. It is why Luther in the large catechism then says, I believe that Jesus Christ has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. That's redemption, to be purchased and won from all sin, from death and from the power of the devil. How did he do it? Not with gold or silver. Sounds just like 1 Peter. It's almost as if Luther paid attention to the Bible. Not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Why? That I may be his own. So, Cherie, you are redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God, true God, true man. Susan, you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. You say that to you every morning to yourself. Dell wakes up in the morning before she even grabs her walker. I am redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. I mean, if you're redeemed by the blood of the eternal Son of the living God who became flesh for you, 
then you, uh, you're in a pretty good position, right? All right. So we take that theme of redemption. Last week in Matthew 27, I went through and underscored blood, blood throughout, the significance of blood. Okay. So we come back here to uh, Matthew 27, verse 3. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So they paid Judas for his betrayal. And Judas is remorseful, seeing, oh my, they're going to execute him. That's what they want to do. He brings back the 30 pieces of silver. He rightly confesses, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say, eh, what's that to us? You see to it. They thrust him back upon himself. He threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But could he save himself with his uh, suicide? No. But the chief priest, not wanting to let anything go to waste, and being also very pious, took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they are correct. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So there is great debate over how much were these 30 pieces of silver worth. It could have been something around 30 pieces of silver, 300 and some dollars an ounce. Who knows, you extrapolate that out. In any case, it is enough funds, uh, which they paid him so much so they wanted that, they wanted Jesus of Nazareth. But it's enough funds that they're able to buy, buy a plot, a piece of real estate, to become a cemetery for strangers, for criminals. Therefore, so there's the theme of redemption there. They bought land with the price of blood for a cemetery. So the price of blood bought the place of the dead, the place of the cemetery. Okay? So you see the idea, Jesus has redeemed us with his holy precious blood from death. So it's called the field of blood. That was the price that was paid. What is the price paid to redeem the heavens and the earth? But the blood of the Son of God. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and this is Zechariah, also 11.12, as well as in Jeremiah, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Strange, isn't it? But it indicates, as the Lord directed me, he is behind even the affairs of the unbelievers. When we talk about God working in all things for good, he even worked through the hatred of the high priests and the Sanhedrin. He worked through the misguided uh, beliefs of Judas Iscariot who betrayed him to accomplish the plan of salvation. He is betrayed by sinners. He is rejected by sinners. 
in order to redeem betrayers and to redeem <coughs> sinners who reject him. So I've often wondered, you know, it's not till going back to this instead, what is the significance of the detail about the 30 pieces of silver, buying this cemetery plot and so forth? And here again, I submit to you, it is the theme of redemption of the world, redemption from death, redemption from the grave. And only the price of his blood could do that. And it's signified here. Susan? Yeah. It's your right of redemption. Uh, do you have it open? Yes. Yeah. So go ahead and read it. Chapter 23, I believe. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is an anathol, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of redemption is yours. The redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. I knew it was the word of the Lord. Yeah, so this, this goes back, this, the redemption price to buy the field. Remember Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess. She's married to the late son of Naomi. Boaz steps in and redeems, pays the price for the property as well as for uh, the, the wife to raise up children after her. So redemption is a theme that's all over the scriptures. Um, verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And when Pilate says that, what is he meaning theologically by saying king, king of the Jews. Messiah. Messiah, the anointed one. So as a Roman governor, he knows their theology, he knows their expectations to have a Messiah, descendant of David's line to rescue them, to redeem them from bondage to foreign powers. So is that who you are claiming to be? So Jesus said to him, it is as you say, which is, yes, I am the Christ. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to, you, to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. How often does it happen in life where an innocent person who is attacked with lies, deceit, false witness of every kind, how often does it happen that they don't defend themselves? They will defend themselves. We are quick as sinners to defend ourselves, even though in most cases there's some element of truth in every accusation. There is no truth in the accusations against him and yet he does nothing to defend himself. This is why it's been pointed out over this year that a lamb that is going to be sheared, generally speaking, is not quiet. You know, as a lamb is silent before its shearers, so Jesus opened not his mouth. That's supposed to indicate this dramatic contrast. Wait! Lambs are not silent when they're sheared. They're bleeding and bleeding away. 
So Becca Girock was asking, but they're not silent. I know, that's the point. This lamb is. Why? Because he takes the accusation, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him, the righteousness of God in that he pays the redemption price as the innocent lamb of God. All right. Now the feast, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. What feast? Passover. What did the Passover celebrate? The Lord's... Yes, yes. The Lord's redemption of his people from slavery. That's what I want you to see here. Okay, By the blood of the Passover lamb. A lot of people think what released them was the plagues. No, no. After all of the plagues, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's not until the blood of the Passover lamb. From God's point of view and theologically, it was the blood of the lamb that brought about the redemption from slavery. That's why it was a custom, an olive branch, you know, a gesture of goodwill, will release one of your prisoners in token of your own Passover where you were released from slavery in Egypt. You get the idea? And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas. Bara or Bar means son of. Abba or Abbas means the father. So this guy's name actually means son of the father. What, a, what an irony. The true son of the father, Jesus, is sentenced to death so that this guy, who represents all of us, might become Baraba, sons of the Father, through the real son of the Father. This is, a great, this is blessed exchange. You know, the one takes the place of another. So Barabbas definitely represents all of us. All of us notorious prisoners. Now notice, uh, I think, one prisoner whom they wished, a notorious prisoner. So what Matthew does uh, in a way that the other evangelists don't, but it doesn't contradict them, is he emphasizes that Barabbas is imprisoned. And so if you're released from prison, you have been redeemed. Yes, you have been redeemed. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ, which indicates Pilate knows what he's talking about in terms of the theology. For he knew that because of envy they delivered him. Now, what describe the envy? What did they envy about Jesus? People loved him. People worshipped him, the common people. He had an honor and a respect and an adoration that they coveted. So they envied him and wanted him put out of the way. Jealous they were of his favored status with the people. While he, that is Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. So Pilate's wife calls him a righteous man. It's kind of neat. Pilate 
says he's without fault, and so does his wife. Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. What is she suffering? What is she dreaming? Have you ever been a prisoner to your own suffering because of her sin? Thoughts? Her own guilt? Her have, own you, <laughs> have you ever been a prisoner to your own fears? Have you ever been a prisoner to your own guilt? A prisoner to a bad conscience? A prisoner to being in a situation where there seems to be no exit? Who can fully discern the nature of her dreams? In dreams, you wrestle with problems and sometimes there's no solution. Like the recurring dream where I'm missing a math class and missing a math class. It's getting me into trouble academically. I don't know if it's, it's like reality and fantasy all rolled into one. Sometimes it carries me and I've had a dream where I had to, I was late to church and had to sneak into the pulpit to preach. <laughs> Through some, some trap door in the pulpit. I've been looking for that trap door, you know. The horror of it all. So certainly uh, Pilate's wife understands that her husband is a Roman governor but he is serving in the armpit of the empire. It is the worst assignment. Why? Because you have to put up with the recalcitrant, stiff-necked, obnoxious Jews, and even within them, they're infighting with each other, as this indicates. I mean, the, the Sanhedrin was like the mafia political and ecclesiastical power, which they did everything to hold on to, and they would trample underfoot their own people, as is evidence here. At, in John's Gospel, Pilate you know, says, Am I a Jew? To Jesus, your own people have delivered. What have, you, what have you done? So Pilate's wife certainly recognizes, if you, if you don't succeed here, We're dead, or there's no place for you to go, you know? This is where, actually, the song um, New York, New York came from. It actually was Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. It's up to you, Jerusalem. Okay, so Pilate's wife is obviously greatly afflicted. And she want have nothing to do with him. Get away from him. Now, the final thing here that I, I want to say about is she needs, she needs redemption from the bad conscience, from the bad thoughts. The response of a sinner to the righteousness of Christ is often one of aversion. You know, like you're repelled by it. At the beginning of the ministry, when Jesus is going to call the disciples, there's a miraculous catch of fish. And Peter says, depart from me. 
I'm a sinful man. You have the same kind of disposition in Pilate's wife. Instead, it should have been have everything to do with him. He's the son of God, the redeemer of the world, the righteous one. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. I like that word, destroy him. That's what they wanted to do. The governor answered and said to him, which of the two do you want me to release to you, you know, set free? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. So even in Matthew's testimony, Pilate continues to say things that you that he says in John's testimony that are true. He never backs off of saying who Jesus really is, the Christ. That doesn't mean he believes it, but nevertheless he speaks what is the truth. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult, what is a tumult? A riot, an uproar was rising. And this is where the, the Sanhedrin, they pulled in all their IOUs and assembled that crowd between five and six o'clock in the morning. And to assemble a crowd of the magnitude enough to rattle the cage of Pilate at that hour was impressive. And if, it's an, if it is done by the religious establishment of the citizens of the power that you are occupying, just from a, a sheer political point of view, you've got to take it seriously. So I'm just speaking, you know, rationally, Pilate, what do I do here? He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Notice how you see to it here corresponds with you see to it that the high priest said to Judas. I am innocent of the blood. I am innocent of this redemption. And that is true because only Jesus could pay the redemption price. He washes his hands in water. You think the blood is on his hands. They go into the basin. I submit there is an allusion to baptism here because the power of baptism is in the blood of redemption that by the word and spirit of God is in the water. And this is made, made stronger by the response of the people. His blood be on us and on our children. It's like saying his redemption be upon us and on our children. So you got Pilate's wife and Pilate saying he is a just man. He's a righteous man. So therefore, this is righteous blood. And only righteous blood can make atonement or payment. Only righteous blood can redeem from slavery. Okay. So he released Barabbas to them. When he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The idea in all of the Gospels is that though Pilate sentences him to death, it's the high priest who offers the sacrifice. And that's for theological <coughs> reasons. 
Okay. So verse 25, his blood be upon us and on our children, is a climax in the St. Matthew Passion. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own. So his blood, the blood of redemption, must cover us, or we have no redemption from sin, death, and the devil. This is the price of redemption, which means it's not simply forgiveness, but it's a forgiveness that gr grabs you. No, grabs you. That I may be his own. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. See, yeah, it, yeah. That, that, because redemption means it's not, it's not just forgiveness. Right. Like your forgiveness and you're out on your own. A fresh start. You are claimed by the blood of Christ. See? From to. From death to life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. From sin to righteousness, holiness, forgiveness. From the devil to Jesus, the Son of God. So you're redeemed, bought from, and joined to. That's the significance here. So by the blood, his blood claims us as his own. That's what redemption is all about. Yes, absolutely it's forgiveness, but it's a claiming of us. That's why I said every morning Dell gets up and says, I am redeemed by the blood of Jesus, therefore I belong to him. I don't belong to sin, I don't belong to death, I don't belong to the power of the devil, I belong to Christ, that I may be his own live under him in his kingdom, and worship him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. So that's the climax here. And if you think about Matthew, he was a tax collector, how significant this was. He was redeemed from the covetous idolatrousness of his thievery as a tax collector to be an evangelist, apostle, and redeemed Christian of the Christ. But the response here by the people, though, is an accurate response only they don't really understand. Yeah, they yeah, they have one motivation, just like Pilate has his motivation, and this, is, this happens all over the Passion. You know, thanks be to God that he would shed his son's blood for us, because without that, we're doomed. Right, and so what they say must be. It must happen for our salvation. All right, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, which is the governor's headquarters, and gathered the whole garrison around him. So when he was arrested in Gethsemane, that was the temple guard under the authority of the high priest. This is now the Roman cohort. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Even the stripping of Jesus' garments, the garments of Christ, signify his righteousness. So he is stripped of that righteousness, which then embraces us. 
When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So there you see typified in common soldiers, which in terms of the Romans, that would be the lowest ranking folks, right? I mean, are they above or are they below Pontius Pilate, the governor? Clearly below. Are they above or below a senator, you know, a Roman senator? Clearly below. So in terms of the Roman echelon of power, the soldiers are the lowest rung. Now, over against the common citizens, of course, they would have power and authority. But this uh, typifies not only unbelief, but the malicious, evil, self-centered immorality of unbelief as they abuse Jesus. And then what does he do? He takes it. Okay. It's interesting, I was reading um, some months ago, in John's Gospel, the first chapter, it says of Jesus, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he gave the, the power, the authority, exousia in the Greek, to become the children of God. And most of the time, I had heard that he came to his own as a reference to the Jews and his own received him not. But not in John's Gospel. Because in John's Gospel, right prior to that, is the, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made through him. Apart from him, nothing was made that was made. And in him, Christ, the Son of God, was life. And that life was the light of men. And he came to his own. So, and his own received him not. So the John Gospel reference, I am now convinced, is not a reference to he came to the Jews, but he came to all of humanity because the Word then was made flesh. Yeah, true, uh, true Jesus in terms of human genealogy was a Jew, but his incarnation embraces all of humanity. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. So he came to his own, namely mankind, who received their life from him. And that's the, that's the, what do you call it? The paradox of unbelief, you know, the, the contradiction. That here, he who is creator and made them was rejected by them whom he made. And yet he came to his own. So... The Jewish, the, the, the Roman soldiers are just as much his own, though they had left him and needed to be redeemed to become his own again, as were the Jews. Do, do you follow what, I, what I'm saying? Okay. So you see the bondage, don't you, in these Roman soldiers in the way in which they mock and treat Jesus. The, the bondage of unbelief and sin. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene. Where is Cyrene located? 
Ooh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Cyrene. You see where it is? So here's Cappadocia, Cilicia. Cyprus is the island here. Crete is over there. Pamphylia, Lycia, Galatia, where he writes the book of Galatians. Cyrene. That's where I'm pointing my finger. Okay, so it's northern Africa. So this, yeah, there it is, right over here. Here's the Mediterranean. Okay, there's where it is. Okay. He, he very likely, most likely, had very rich complexion. And he has come, this Cyrene, Simon the Cyrene, he is a proselyte to the Hebrew faith. And Passover was a pilgrim feast. So here he had journeyed from Africa, present-day Libya, to Jerusalem for the Passover. We learn that he had two sons. Do you know who their names were? They're referenced in the New Testament. Rufus and Alexander. Alexander and Rufus, and they end up becoming um, rather well-known in the church. Their father was Simon the Cyrene. Cool, hey? I saw that, what was the museum? This, this is 20 years ago in Milwaukee. We went to the museum. What? Yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit, yeah. Yeah. Is it that? I thought it was longer ago than that. Memory's the first thing to go. It's a beautiful thing. By the way, uh, Pat Durham will be here from the courtyard on the Thursday Coffee Break Bible Study, the 8th of June, which will be the last one. She'll give a little presentation to us. Um, that I think should be very informative about aging and things that are normal and things that are abnormal and how to support the aging. Are you aging, Cherie? <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's going to help me know how to support you. <laughs> or how we go into this together, whichever, the, whichever comes first. All right, so back to Simon the Cyrene. So that's where he's from, northern Africa. And they compelled him to bear his cross, forced him to take up the cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, Gall is a sedative, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. So Matthew is careful to record that he will not drink the sedative of gall. So he goes into this fully conscious. Now, Golgotha, place of a skull, this past um, 
Lent, I'm hearing that the word Golgotha may be better translated head, uh, the head. In either case, whether skull or head, I mean skull is part of the, the, bone, the bone structure that covers the head, you cannot help but think of Genesis 3.15, how the seed of the woman would redeem from the power of Satan by crushing the serpent's head. Okay, that's where the skull is. The other thing that I learned was uh, there is more and more evidence that the location of the crucifixion is not where it has normally been thought of. Did you hear that? Uh, yeah. It, right, but, but rather in a location on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley where from that location you could see the entrance to the temple. Because if you looked in the, so it would be east of the temple and where the opening of the temple was, outside of the temple you've got the altar of burnt sacrifice, the laver, and then the, the temple. But from that location you could see in and see the curtain of the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies. So when the centurion witnesses the events, the darkness, now that would have been evident all over the region, the earthquake and the ripping of the veil of the temple, he is able to eyewitness observe these things. Secondly, there is the new tomb nearby in a garden, which would have been a garden of the Mount of Olives, where the tomb was of Joseph of Arimathea was located. So it is a compelling argument, and I'm inclined toward it. All right. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now where is that recorded? It's actually Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So, I mean, there are other allusions to him being stripped and so forth. But um, in Psalm 22, you have... Dogs have surrounded me. They assembled, the assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, gape at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Uh, this is why so many commentators... Pastor Gelbach mentioned it to you. I returned to the theme after the, he was here that when Jesus prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first verse of Psalm 22. All of this is in his mind and heart, you know, because who's speaking? I mean, who is speaking? The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. 
Who is speaking? They pierced my hands and my feet. Who is speaking? I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Who's speaking? You know, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Who's speaking? Christ. Yes. Christ Jesus. They're in, in his mouth. So, he is subject then to bondage in order that those who are under bondage might what? Be set, Be set free. There's redemption language. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. They're gaping at him. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. All of the evangelists agree on this. There is in none of the evangelists, he said, I am the King of the Jews. But this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Again, so officially, you know, legally, under the jurisprudence of the day, under the judgment of the governor Pontius Pilate who speaks for God, Jesus is crucified, executed for who he is, Son of God, Christ. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself! If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Of course, had he come down from the cross, he would not have been the Savior. However, there is an irony in verse 40. For whom does the salvation or redemption of the Lord Jesus first bear its fruit? For him not by coming down from the cross, but by paying the redemption price himself for sin, death, and the power of the evil one. That's why he is called the first fruits of those who sleep. So the first to benefit from the redemption that his sacrifice of blood made is Jesus himself. Again, but not by avoiding the suffering, but by making the payment, shedding his blood. Do you, do you follow that? Because the sin and death was laid upon him. Right. It's just hard to wrap around that he was sinless. So why he is sinless, he but that? he becomes the sinner. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when the, this is C.S. Lewis here, you know, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. He talks about the deeper magic. The white witch, symbol of Satan, I've got them. You know, Edmund is mine. However, according to the deeper magic, when one, an innocent one, offers his life in exchange for the guilty one, both are set free. So what happens, the stone, uh, Aslan dies, the stone table is cracked. Like the veil of the temple, you know, is rent in twain. 
Aslan dies, the stone table is cracked. Not only is Edmund set free from bondage to the White Witch, but Aslan rises from the dead. See, that's why I, I keep making this theological point and uh, all over the place when I talk about it, that Jesus rose from the dead because his death made atonement for sin. The sin that was laid upon him, his death made atonement for it. Therefore, he must rise from the dead unless his death didn't pay the price for sin. Then he stays dead. Okay? That's why Paul says, if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. sins. And then you are of all people most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep in the sleep of death. Okay, yeah. All right, so. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. Because what do they believe in? They believe in doing things and operating in ways that only serve themselves. So there's the temptation. Serve yourself. And he came not to be served, but to serve. See? He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Where does this all come from? Psalm 22 again, verse 8, and Handel's Messiah. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him. I mean, if you want to see a great opera, Handel's Messiah is this opera, oratorio. And it's, you can hear the crowd, he trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. You can just see the mob before the cross. He, tr he trusted. Okay, anyway, Susan. All these things, we're not to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Correct. All these things that are happening, okay, this is speculation. All of these things are Psalm 22. That's why I'm drawing attention to it. Absolutely. That I will declare your name to my brethren. Correct. And when he when I cried, he heard. Correct. And the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Your heart will live forever. All that, if all this other stuff was prophesied and is coming true right now. Yes, yes. And that's what the apostles end up witnessing. Even though they didn't realize they were witnessing at the time to go back to the scriptures as Jesus led them there in the resurrection appearances. I, I, I just have to believe that for most of them who were Jews from Galilee, went to the synagogue, being led back to the scriptures in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and so many countless other places, that their reaction would have been, how stupid, how foolish we were. 
Okay? And I'm, I, I just cannot help but imagine Jesus as all of this is going on. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, oh my God, I cry to you in the daytime. You are holy. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. That's redemption language too. This is all Psalm 22. They trusted and were not ashamed. You are he who took me out of the womb, Mary's womb. You made me trust when I was on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. That's the underlayment. That's what he is praying as all of these violent, loud-mouthed assertions of rejection are swirling around. These are on his lips. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up. You have brought me to the dust of death. That's all in the first person. It's not in the first person because Jesus never prayed it. Right? It's in the first person. If it doesn't apply to Jesus, who does it apply to? It applies to him. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me, Kathy. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Okay. So, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness. In Matthew's time here, the sixth hour is 12 noon. The ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. Which means at that time, you're on the threshold of the end of the day, looking to a new day. So he's with Pontius Pilate between five and six in the morning. Then he carries the cross. Simon the Cyrene is compelled to carry it, which we all are compelled. St. Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels us or constrains us. For we judge thus that if one died for all, then all have died. And he died for all that we should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. So that idea of constraint, on the one hand, the cross is laid upon Simon the Cyrene. He's compelled to carry it against his will. On the other hand, it is the gospel when received and the miracle of faith is created that compels us to carry it. In other words, what compels a person to make the sacrifices of love and to expend themselves in their vocation, but the love of Christ that compels them, that constrains them. Okay? So you've got this wonderful paradox here going on. And Matthew, I forget where he was martyred, but he was martyred. Uh, Matthew, who had been the covetous, odious, self-centered miser tax collector, ends up being compelled by the love of his blood covers me and my children. He's compelled to expend himself, to sacrifice himself. All right, so it's from the sixth to the ninth hour now, 12 noon. That's why the tenebrae service we have in the morning and the candles are extinguished because it marks the descent of darkness, that nine o'clock service that we have. And about the ninth hour, about, okay, three-ish, 
which is also the time that the evening sacrifice of the temple would have been taking place. So I find this, this juxtaposition, especially if you think about this location that I suggested from this scholar looking at the data, that Jesus is crucified outside the temple across the Kidron Ravine on the Mount of Olives, and you're looking down there at the temple where there's the blood and the fire and the vapor of smoke. Remember that for Pentecost, the Joel prophecy. There's blood because at the evening sacrifice, the blood of the animal was shed and then sprinkled upon the altar. The blood, the fire on that altar and the vapor of smoke. So as Jesus is expiring, the smoke from the altar of burnt sacrifice is swirling up to heaven. Isn't that fantastic? Because the real sacrifice is not the one at that altar of burnt sacrifice, but to what that real sacrifice, pointing to that real sacrifice. You follow? And so here again, I mean, it's, it's the guys that shouldn't realize are the ones who realize it. This is all over the Gospels. You got the centurion you know, standing, watching this whole thing and seeing this whole drama unfold. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Okay, all right. So, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's directly uh, the, Psalm 22, verse 1. So Psalm 22 has unfolded in the drama of the Passion. And this first verse is like the antiphon, the theme verse. And there's an answer to the rhetorical question. Why have you forsaken me? Because on you has been laid the iniquity of the world. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, guess what? They were right. Because Elijah means Yahweh is God. Okay, so he is confessing Yahweh is God. He refers to the first person of the Trinity, but nonetheless, he is confessing it. He's calling upon his Father, as is evident from Psalm 22. Can you say that again? His name means what? Elijah. Elijah. Means Yah is Yahweh, Eli is God. It means Yahweh is God. Because Elohim in the Hebrew is a generic term for God. Like, what's your Elohim? Money, fame, fortune. Yah, I am. So, Lord, with the all caps in the Old Testament, is a reference to the personal name for the only God who is. Namely, the God of Israel, the God of the promise of salvation, the eternal God, and so forth. So, Yahweh, the Lord, is God. Um, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now the rest said, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Then uh, Jesus, when he had cried out with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. 
Uh, it's not simply his life force or soul, but the Holy Spirit with whom he had been anointed at his baptism, uh, he yields up. Do you remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel? It is necessary that I go to the Father. For if I do not go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now remember, the veil signified sin which separated us from God. So, we need to be redeemed from sin. The shedding of his blood upon the cross redeems us from sin. The result is the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And notice the wonderful proclamation here. Those daily sacrifices were burnt offerings for sin. The curtain remained intact year in and year out, and year day in and day out, week in and week out, the curtain remained. So the sacrifices continued. But now the curtain is ripped open. It no longer remains, which is to say, the sin that separated us from God is taken away, and we are redeemed. So the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the grave after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Fantastic. Now notice, on Pentecost, Peter said, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will not give its light and the moon will be turned to blood at the threshold of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This is the description of it. And the powers of heaven and earth will be shaken. That's what the centurion is witnessing. So, Jesus, it is as if his redemption work is so powerful, we can't even wait till Easter Sunday to see it. Matthew is recording it here. As soon as, and, and this is what John records, it is finished. Matthew records it by the phenomenon, the results. The veil of the temple, the earthquake, and so forth. He records it is finished, this cataclysmic shaking of the creation, heaven and earth, that is now redeemed. So it's, it is as if he is ripping away from Satan, sin, and death, all of creation, okay, and ushering in new life. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they said, ho-hum. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. All right, that is where there's the confession of faith born of the fulfillment of the scriptures by the blood of Christ, whereby he redeemed from sin, death, and the evil one. All right, that's where we'll stop today, but if you have a final comment or question, I'll certainly entertain it. Yes, Sue. 
Well, that's, that's a good question. Did they stop doing? God allows them to continue for a couple of decades. This is 33 AD. In 70 AD, they stopped. Why did they stop? Because the Romans leveled the temple to the ground. So how many years is that? 37. Right? From 33 AD to, to 70, 37 years. And, and so they continue as there is this transition of preaching that begins in the temple, in the temple, in the temple, in the temple, and then in the synagogues of the Jews, in the synagogues of the Jews, until finally no more. They're not allowed. They're barred. They're severed from it, thrown out of the synagogue, thrown out of the temple. And then, so it is as if the Lord says, well, the temple has served its purpose. Now it will be no more. As judgment that Christ's work avails. And the true temple is the one that was destroyed at the altar of the cross, but raised from the dead the third day, never to be destroyed again. But the temple in Jerusalem, is that, I mean, you're talking not quite 2,000 years. It's never been rebuilt. Now there's an Islamic mosque on the Temple Mound. Okay. So it, it, the, the, the Jewish faith radically changes when there's no more daily sacrifices. And seven days a week at three o'clock in the afternoon, there's a sacrifice. All of those, the slaughtering of lambs and sheep and turtle doves and bulls and goats and so forth, no more. Well, then it becomes a very different religion. So the, re the religion of we need redemption through blood is fulfilled in the redemption through blood by Jesus, who is the Son of God. All right, so we'll meet next week, same time, same station. We'll put in the bulletin about uh, Pat Durham being here on that 8th of June. But Okay, grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.